everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine time on this beautiful, whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. A little bit conflicted. You know that feeling when you realize that something you've been doing your whole life, you've been doing in a really inefficient way, and you're both excited because of your new plan, but you're also eh, a little bit embarrassed about all the time you wasted. I'm going through that right now. You see, I like to read autobiographies. I think it's a good way to get information about people, and people's lives fascinate me. But I just got to the end of one, and I realized there's an about the author at the end. Oh, jeez. I wasted so much time. I could have just read that. Eh, well, I'll know for next time. And now you will, too. And that's a little tip from me to you. Anyway, we've got a giant load of glorious nonsense to unpack today. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was submitted by Humza Cosmi. Doc Strange will regularly the Hulk diss should have spent his time making a synopsis. Synopsis! Thanks, Humza. That was dope. The Defenders, number 34. April, 1976. I think we're all bozos in this book. Written by Steve Gerber, drotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Jim Mooney, lettered by Irv Watanabe, colored by Irene Vartanoff, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie, the Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Nighthawk, sort of, and Jack Norris, I think. Previously in the Defenders. During the team's first encounter with Nighthawk, back in issue number 13, the gang ran afoul of a glamrock interstellar geologist turned unscrupulous real estate agent named Nebulon, the celestial man from beyond the stars. Nebulon tried to melt the polar ice caps with a laser so that he could sell the Earth to some space fish. Our titular non-team blew up his laser, which appeared to destroy the Bowie-esque cosmic con artist. In more recent news, a cadre of curiously craniumed criminals called the Headmen set their sights on our squadron of superheroes. These nightmarishly noggined ne'er-do-wells kidnapped Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, scooped out his brain, stuck it in a punch bowl, and substituted the cerebellum of one of their members, Chandu, a chrome-domed cut-rate conjurer. The Chandu-brained, Kyle-bodied Nighthawk met up with the Incredible Hulk, who had just adopted a baby deer after smashing the hunters who had killed its mother. The brain-swapped billionaire, the green goliath, and the orphaned fawn headed to Stephen Strange's sanctum sanctimonious to meet up with the rest of the defenders. Once inside, Chandu slash Nighthawk turned on his purported pals and attacked them. So Steve used a fraction of his mystic might to sorcerously smack the shit out of the counterfeit Kyle. Hooray! Through a combination of sorcery, deduction, and very good guesses, our heroes quickly ascertained both their assailant's actual identity and the location of Kyle's disembodied brain, the headman's headquarters in the basement of a suburban home in Westbury, Connecticut. Great guesswork, gang! 
Steve apparently figured the game of musical minds the headman had started wasn't complicated enough, so before heading to Connecticut to confront the cerebrum-swapping supervillains, Steve sorcerously superimposed the brain of Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body the sorcerously created persona Valkyrie was currently inhabiting, into the brain of Chandu, which was in the body of Kyle Richmond. Got it? Good, then maybe you can explain it to me later. With Jack's mind stuffed into Chandu's brain in Kyle's body, Strange needed a place to put the displaced Chandu mind, so he jammed that into the body of the Hulk's newly acquired baby deer. Sure, why not? I mean, apart from the obvious ethical and logistical reasons. With that particular game of three-brain Monty out of the way, Steve, Val, the Hulk, and the turducken-headed Nighthawk headed out to retrieve Kyle's brain. No sooner did our costumed quartet, or possibly quintet? Sextet? Depart, then the fawn-formed Chandu began seeking a means of escape, eventually finding success by Kool-Aid manning his dear body through the Sanctum's window. Finally free, Chandu began his journey to rejoin his fiendish friends in the suburbs, only to be scooped up by a group of orange-skinned creature from the Black Lagoon-looking aliens who had been abducting an assortment of humans and other Earth animals from around the globe and depositing them in another dimension on an ancient Greek-looking island filled with Kirby-esque machinery. That old chestnut. More on those orange-scaled extraterrestrials later. Meanwhile, our heroes had arrived at the headman's innocuous-looking headquarters. They knocked on the door and were almost immediately ambushed by the strangely sculled supervillain's newest recruit, Ruby. Ruby was a scantily clad scientist whose head was a shiny red bowling ball that she could magically, er, scientifically, transform into whatever she wanted it to. She turned her head into a device which knocked out our heroes, quicker than you can say, no solicitors. Handy, or should I say, heady. I probably shouldn't, but I just did, and there's nothing you can do about it. After reviving Nighthawk, who they believed to be Chandu, but was secretly Jack, sort of, the headmen carted off Hulk, Steve, and Val to their basement, and did some unexplained brain surgery on them. This seems like the sort of thing that Jack should have tried to stop them from doing, but he had his, or Kyle's, hands full, pretending to be Chandu, pretending to be Kyle. I think. Also, he was flirting with Ruby. After their surgeries were complete, the defenders were revived and told that they were free to go. Curiouser and curiouser. Seemingly unaffected by their recent involuntary brain surgeries, the defenders informed their inhospitable hosts that they had no intention of leaving without Kyle's brain. At which point, for the first time, the headmen realized that the defenders knew that Kyle wasn't Kyle. Everybody fought everybody. During the scuffle, Kyle's body, helmed by Jack's mind in Chandu's brain, grabbed Kyle's brain bowl and took to the skies. This action pleased both teams of combatants, each of whom thought that the Kyle body was affiliated with their side. The Hulk smashed the headmen's house to pieces. Ruby shot an enormous wad of silly putty out of her miraculous melon, which incapacitated our protagonist long enough for the headmen to make their escape. But what of the Jack Chandu Kyle hybrid hero and his burgled brain bowl? Well, a few minutes after our somewhat schizophrenically situationed superhero headed skyward, he was intercepted by a UFO and beamed aboard. Of course he was. Inside the flying saucer, Nighthawk was introduced to his captors, the orange-scaled creatures we encountered earlier, and their partner, Nebulon, the celestial man from beyond the stars. Gadzooks! Will any other consciousnesses get crammed into Kyle's triple-stuffed skull? 
After being a conman, an interstellar geologist, a shady planetary real estate agent, and potentially an intercontinental champion, what profession will Nebulon look to add to his resume next? And perhaps the most pertinent and perplexing question of all, what the fuck just happened? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so somewhat surprisingly, no. At least I don't think so. A self-help motivational speaker, of course. And, man, if you can figure that out, please tell me. Aboard the alien UFO, Jack slash Chandu slash Kai... Look, I'm just going to call him Nighthawk and figure that you folks have as much or as little an idea of who I'm talking about as I do. Anyway, Nighthawk finds himself face to shiny golden face with Nebulon. The Celestial Man from Beyond the Stars is surprisingly friendly, and apologizes to Nighthawk for the whole trying to flood the planet by melting the ice caps thing. Oh, that's cool, Nebulon. Us Earthlings were going to get around to that soon enough anyway. Nebulon shows his guest a cool diorama he's been working on that looks like a cross between ancient Greece and Washington, D.C. It is a very nice diorama. The Sparkly Spaceman goes on to fill Nighthawk in on what he's been up to lately. Turns out that when his laser blew up, the glam geologist was sent hurtling through the dimensions, eventually landing on the homeworld of his new orange scaly buddies, who are named the Ludbergites. Nebulon explains that the Ludbergites are a race of scientists and philosophers, who believe that it is their duty to uplift the cultures of species who they believe to be inferior. How nice. Not condescending and jingoistic at all. Nebulon goes on to inform Nighthawk that being exposed to the Ludbergites' altruism helped him realize what an asshole he had been. Resolving to adopt his host philosophy of philanthropy as his own, Nebulon was like, Hey, if you're looking for a planet that needs to be uplifted and improved, I've got just the place for you. I was on this place called Earth, and let me tell you, it's a real shit show. Hey. I mean, fair point, but still. Hey. The Ludbergites and their new acolyte headed to Earth and started abducting Earth creatures and probing their brains so that they could figure out in which ways we were all screwed up. Huh. If that's why they swiped the elephant and giraffe last issue, I hope that's not who they started with. If they did, then at first they'd be like, Oh shit, we were wrong about these Earth creatures. These dudes are rad as fuck. No notes. Then they'd look at a human and think, Well, I guess we better scan one of these shittier looking Earthers just to make sure and... Oh. Oh, shit. Yeah, we're gonna be here a while. The shiny-skinned Earth Shamer asks Nighthawk if he approves of Nebulon's newfound benevolence and wants to lend a hand. Not wanting his cosmic kidnapper to know that he's not the man he used to be, the jack-helmed hero says, Sure, why not? Nebulon replies, Great news! Then we'll just stick you in with the other abductees and start scanning your mind. Thanks, buddy! Before he has a chance to object, the costumed crime fighter with a crowded cranium finds himself beamed down to the Greco-Kirby Island with the rest of the assorted Earth creatures, including a certain angry baby deer. Chandu, in his furious fawn form, attacks the body which he had recently unsuccessfully hijacked. It is somehow both adorable and unsettling. Fortunately, Chandu doesn't do a heck of a lot of harm because, you know, he's a baby deer. Meanwhile, back in Connecticut, the defenders struggle to free themselves from the goo that Ruby shot out of her head at them. A neighbor, whose house the Hulk had smashed the shit out of when he was traveling through town a few months ago, starts pointing and laughing at our protagonist's predicament. Bad move, neighbor. 
The Hulk reacts predictably and once again smashes the shit out of the neighbor's house. Soon after the insolence-inspired demolition, the Defenders manage to free themselves from their goo pile, and Steve teleports them back to his sanctorum. He's surprised to find that Wong has hired some repairmen to fix the window that Chandu broke when he escaped. Steve is kind of a dick to Wong, and the repairmen take umbrage at the Sorcerer Supreme's supremely shitty manners. Hulk and Val yell at the workers and tell them to mind their own business. It's kind of crappy. Inside Steve's study, the ill-mannered mage informs his costumed counterparts that he is unable to locate Nighthawk, probably on account of they aren't on this planet anymore. As Steve is explaining this, the Hulk gets bored and decides to jump around the city in search of his missing deer. After the Jade Giant's departure, Val takes a few minutes to go and look at Jack Norris's mindless, unconscious body. She thinks out loud to herself that it's weird that she hopes he's not dead. Yeah, from what we've seen of Jack so far, that is kind of weird. Steve overhears Val's soliloquizing and lectures her. You know, Valkyrie, you really ought to learn to turn some of those word bubbles into thought bubbles. If you constantly self-narrate, people might think you're an arrogant prick. Good point, Steve. Meanwhile, in Times Square, an enormous flaming meteorite has just landed. A small, bespectacled bald man emerges from the wreckage and politely says hello to the gaping crowd of onlookers. A police officer asks the nebbishy newcomer what gives. The man explains that he created the meteorite by harnessing his mental potential, then starts proselytizing to the gathered spectators about the power of positive thinking. As the Hulk leaps overhead, he sees the scene below and is filled with an uncontrollable rage. I mean, more so than usual. The Hulk somehow senses that the impromptu motivational seminar giver is responsible for the deer napping of his ungulate ward. Implausibly, but perhaps unsurprisingly, the Hulk is 100% correct. When the Emerald Animal Rights activist goes to punch him, the little man's image shimmers and he reveals himself to be Nebulon in disguise. The self-styled metallic-hued messiah seals the Hulk in a magic bubble, which he hurls into space. Oh man, the Hulk hates getting hurled into space. To demonstrate his disdain for involuntary astronautics, the Green Goliath smashes the bubble and plummets back to Earth. During the cutoff-clad contrary cosmonauts' commute, Nebulon reassumed his nebbishy appearance and began handing out flyers to a free seminar that evening on harnessing the power of celestial mind control. When the Hulk finally finds himself back on terra firma, Nebulon is long gone, but the Hulk finds a leaflet for the free seminar which is scheduled for 8 p.m. that evening. On the pseudo-Greek techno island where the Ludbordite abductees are being held, the confused kidnap victims all find themselves getting very sleepy almost as though their willpower was being drained away from them. Almost as if that is exactly what is happening. Hmm. Later that evening, at the Hulk's insistence, Val, Hulk, and Doctor Strange change into civilian disguises and head to the Plaza Hotel to attend a very unusual seminar. There's a brief kerfuffle when security suspects that Val is trying to sneak her sword into the auditorium, which she is. But, through a combination of indignation, bravado, and sorcery, the defenders manage to bluff their way past the security guards. Our heroes take their seats in the front row, just as Nebulon, in his more milquetoast disguise, is taking the stage. The lecture he delivers is... unique. He starts off by extolling the virtues of his patented celestial mind control method, and describing in general terms the way its use can improve one's life. Fair enough. 
Then, and I say this knowing full well the nature of the events I have described thus far, things get weird. Hooray! Nebulon tells his audience that the first step in improving oneself is admitting the mistakes you've made thus far. You must admit to yourself and the world around you that you are a bozo. To illustrate this point, he has each member of the audience reach under their seat, find the Bozo the Clown mask his followers have placed there, and put it on their heads. They all do so, as Nebulon continues to berate them and call them Bozos. It is spectacular. Nebulon then singles out the now doubly disguised Doctor Strange and has him come on stage for additional beratement. The celestial Tony Robbins from Beyond the Stars pulls back a curtain, revealing all of the Ludbradite abductees standing there with blank looks on their faces chanting BOZO at Steve. Then a bunch of cheerleaders come out from backstage and join in the BOZO chanting. This proves to be the final straw for Steve's wounded dignity. The Sorcerer Supreme casts off both his BOZO mask and the disguise spell he had been using and reveals himself to his tormentor who, much to Steve's surprise, responds by revealing himself to be Nebulon. The celestial self-help guru and the defenders attack one another. During the dust-up, Steve senses that Nighthawk and the other abductees seem to have had most of their psychic energy drained. The disrespected doctor erects a mystical barrier around the still brain bowl-bearing Nighthawk to prevent further existential erosion. Nebulon seems to be getting the better of his heroic counterparts when an odd thing happens. Suddenly, Nebulon and all of the abductees except for Nighthawk blink out of existence and are teleported from the lecture room to an unknown location. Huh? It turns out that the unscheduled magical exodus was the handiwork of Chandu. So I guess I should say hoofy work rather than handiwork. Because Chandu's a baby deer right now, so, so he has hoofs instead of hands. Trust me, it is very funny. Anyway, I guess Chandu was able to tap into all of the sorceress energy that was being flung around and channel some of it to zap himself, his fellow captives, and Nebulon off to a secure location. Only Nighthawk had been shielded by Steve, so he stayed put. So, the good news is, the defenders now have the necessary parts to reassemble one whole Kyle, one whole Jack, and still have a leftover Chandu brain to put in a bowl or something. The bad news is... Steve now suspects that the Headman and Nebulon might team up. But the really bad news is that for the next issue, writing the previously in the Defenders section is probably going to break my brain. Huh. I wonder if Steve will still have that extra one lying around. Hope so. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? <laughs> good. I'm okay. Glad to hear it. Why you got the giggles, buddy? Because it is funny to me that every time we start one of these things, we're laughing our butts off, and then you say, are you ready? And we both try and get real serious <laughs> for the intro. Yeah. So, okay, yes, I am ready. Hub, how are you? I am fine. Yeah, do we... I know we don't we do not do that for this one, do we? No, but, but we have for to. God's sake, we have to. We have officially entered the biggest bozone of all. It's like a black hole of bozos has swallowed up all the bozos in the known universes and put them into this comic book. And just, yeah, just started firing them at us. Rapid fire. Bozos everywhere. Man, the humanity. The bozonity. So many bozos. So many bozos. 
<laughs> the picture of them all... Oh, my God. We'll get to this. Yeah. You ready to get into the comic book? I think so. Okay, let's do it. So, wow. This was so fun and so goofy, and I kept cracking up when I was reading it, and the people who were around me who were not familiar with the comic book would be like, what's so funny? And I would just be like, I can't explain it to you because it would take too long. Yeah. I am not looking forward to writing this synopsis. Oh my goodness. But yeah, there's so much weirdness and it's so complicated and so good. (laughs) I love the way that Nighthawk wearing Norris's personality in Chandu's brain is drawn while holding his own body's brain in a bowl of goo and so many panels. Yeah, his body language is so totally different when he is Jack Norris in Kyle's body. He is so uncomfortable, as would I be. Yeah, well, and it's that, and he's also in the additional role of trying to pretend that he is Kyle to one of Kyle's enemies who now claims to be a good guy. It's such a complicated situation, and you can almost see in his posture himself trying to keep track of what is happening. And he's like, so wait, so no, I'm my my mind, but it's not my brain. And then I'm holding this brain that belongs to this body, but it's not my brain. And, and now a baby deer is attacking me. Oh, jeez. Because <laughs> he's got somebody else's brain in it. <sighs> no, it's got the baby deer's brain. It just doesn't have the baby deer's mind. It has the mind of the brain that is in the body that is being attacked. Oh, <laughs> So confusing. So confusing. So I did try and explain that to my audience at home. (laughs) And they didn't think it was funny. Weird. Yeah. So, Nebulon's back. Hooray. Hooray? Uh, I'm gonna give it a hooray. I mean, he's definitely a piece of shit. He's he's a jerk. He's a fun piece of jerk. He's a fun piece of jerk. He sure is. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on Nebulon? How well do you remember him from the... Defenders 14 story arc. Not very well, to be honest. I He was bad guy. Oh, he wanted to buy the planet to flood it with water? Well, he already assumed ownership of the planet. He had bought the planet from the Squadron Sinister. Oh. And that was the storyline that introduced Nighthawk to, to the Defenders. And then he was going to sell it to some people who wanted it flooded, so... He needed to melt the polar ice caps. That's right. But he was kind of a sanctimonious jerk, and we find out that his true form is not that of Nebulon, but a weird gooey space monster thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That being said, he's got a fun aesthetic. I like how high-handed he is, and there's a reference on, I think, the very first page to, I almost called him Kyle, but it's the jack-brained, Kyle-bodied, let's just call him Nighthawk. Yep. He's trying to explain things to Nighthawk, and Nighthawk's like, yeah, but can you say it a little quieter? And that is a reference to the fact that in early appearances, Nebulon is described as having a voice like a thousand crystal gongs ringing. Ah. And I thought that was a fun little aside. They didn't reference it explicitly, but there's still that little nod to it, and it's almost like Steve Gerber is getting a little ding at the character creation and having some fun with it. Mm. And I thought that was a nice touch. I had forgotten that. I just assumed that he was just shouting at the top of his lungs (laughs) because he thought that was how people needed to be spoken to. (laughs) I mean, you're probably not wrong about that as well. 
He does a lot of shouting in this issue, both in his Nebulani, golden-skinned, silver-haired form, and the other form he adopts. Now, you had some questions about why he chose that form, right? Well, I mean, mainly just why did he choose that form? It's a kind of small Dr. Bunsen honeydew-looking human man. Yeah, a traditionally nebbishy sort of body that he has chosen. And I think you can extrapolate that the reason for that is that he has generally a fairly low opinion of humanity. I mean, that's stated explicitly, where he talks about how last time he clashed with the Defenders, he got banished to this other dimension, and that's where he met the Ludbergites, and they convinced him he should be a good dude, and kind of have a orange scaly man's burden thing going on, where he tries to raise up the inferior species of the universe, and that as a superior, enlightened person, it is their responsibility to do so. Which, kind of a shitty attitude for, an, for altruism, but it also does speak to why he would maybe adopt a easily caricatured form of humanity. It kind of reminds me of the speech that David Carradine gives in Kill Bill Volume 2, where he's talking about Superman, and he, his whole thing is that Superman's true identity is Superman, and that the alter ego that he assumes is Clark Kent, and that's really him making fun of humans. Like, that the human form that he decides to choose is clumsy and kind of a nerd and because that's what he thinks of people and i think nebulon's kind of doing a similar thing here where he's like oh if i'm going to convince humans of things i should look like a human this is what humans look like and so that's why he chooses that form i think curious he's not very consistent with it because he pretty quickly reverts to his nebulani form mm-hmm Really, whenever he's confronted by anyone. Because the Hulk starts pounding on him and he's like, Nope, now I'm Nebulon. Which is, is a weird thing that he would revert to a different assumed appearance rather than his true form in times of stress. Because his true form's that weird, like... Takes too long to draw. Yeah, you're probably right. Tentacles and all. Yeah, still. Also, him as Nebulon looks awesome when the Hulk goes to give him a big punch and he just palms the Hulk's fist and is like, nope. <laughs> that was a badass panel. It reminds me of sometimes you will go to do a fist bump and I will pretend I'm confused and I will grab your hand, your fist and shake it. I don't care for that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but that's maybe what, what Nebulon's doing. Now Hulk must have been so mad. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that Nebulon's uh, newfound altruism is real or is it some kind of a con he's running either on humanity or on the Ludbergites. If it is a con, it's pretty well hidden because the exposition basically has him talking about, yeah, I met the Ludbergites and I liked their red scaly man's version of, you know, we got to bring up everything consciousness-wise across the universe because we're better than everybody. And that really resonates with me. He kind of says that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, but he's saying that to Nighthawk when he's trying to convince Nighthawk that he's a good guy now. Uh, so maybe it's a sham. Maybe he's he using... is historically a con man, kind of. Oh, he could be using the Ludbergites because they really seem quite affectionate of him. 
Yeah, fall from last issue when they were clinging to his leg and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know if he's running a con on the Ludbridites, if he's running a con on humanity, if he and the Ludbridites are running a con on humanity. I don't trust this Nebulon fellow. But let's get into what his con is. Okay. Or not con, if it's not a con. He wants to raise up humanity by imbuing them with celestial mind control. And the way that he does that is it's through this, like, self-help guru type of approach where he's like a Tony Robbins type character. Like a short, bald Tony Robbins. <laughs> yeah. Although this predates Tony Robbins' career. I think it's a, a year or two from the time this comic book came out. Tony Robbins would start doing public speaking, so possibly Tony Robbins was inspired by him. Um, Wait, do you think Tony Robbins is Nebulon? I think Tony Robbins wishes he was Nebulon. <laughs> I mean, he's a giant man with golden skin and long hair. Does he have long hair? No. I'm thinking of Fabio. I conflate the two. <laughs> Either way, hmm. he's a giant golden man. So oh. I think he might be trying to be Nebulon. Just need some sparkly leotards? Yeah. No. He might have them. It, it's, a, it's like a one-piece bathing suit with sleeves. Yeah, and a giant silver cummerbund. Well, I think it's an intercontinental championship belt. It looks, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think he had to beat Tito Santana to get that thing. Tito Santana. Or, I'm sorry, it's 76. He would have had to beat Pat Patterson to get that. Well, how did he do? Indeed. I mean, honestly, if that guy could beat Pat Patterson, I might listen to his seminar. It's free. What have you got to lose? (laughs) Only my dignity. Oh, that's true. You're going to sit there and be forced (laughs) to wear a bozo mask all day? That was the amazing thing to me, was that everyone in the audience went along with it when he's like, you're all bozos, aren't you? And they're like, no, I'm not really convinced about this. I don't know about this guy. I'm a little bit offended. Grumble, grumble, rutabaga, rutabaga. And then he's like, now everybody reach under your seats and put on your true face. And everybody in the audience reaches under their seat, gets a bozo the clown mask, and puts it on their face. You would think that a few of them would have just Take it out, look at the bozo mask, and you're like, nah, I ain't doing that. I would think that the majority of the audience would react that way. Is there some rudimentary level mind control going on already at that point, do you think? I had strongly considered that, um, especially because the uh, three protagonists. Well, them I understand because their whole thing is they want to go along with this and find out what's happening. And I was actually pretty impressed with Doctor Strange, like suffering the indignity of doing that and then coming up on stage that was maybe my favorite scene is when the the cheerleaders are cheering bozo and he's sitting there somehow through the clown mask looking very dignified and having a look of wounded dignity as a clown in a clown mask it was pretty impressive that was a well-drawn panel i could sense his (laughs) perturbance through the panel But, like I said, it makes sense for the Defenders to go along with that. But, like, the rich old lady that's sitting next to him, I don't know why she did. The Defenders, at least, were not being mind-controlled at that point because they do later strike out against Nebulon. Maybe some peer pressure? Yeah, probably. Everybody else is wearing a bozo mask. Even rich old lady's got a (laughs) bout of peer pressure. Well, I never, I suppose, just this once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was an absolutely bonkers whole set of drawings that whole page now i had a question about the let's call it the bozo connection between the defenders and the new teen titans now the link in that chain is marv wolfman marv wolfman is the editor of this book at the time 
and then he's the writer of the new Teen Titans. And at first, I was thinking, I wonder if just being around that word being used that much is why he started including it in dialogue so much. I think it's much more likely that that word was just part of Wolfman's regular dialogue, and Steve Gerber was making fun of him a little bit. Oh, really? I mean, it's all supposition on my part, but, I mean, it would make sense in terms of Steve Gerber was known to have a number of problems with authority, and if he viewed Wolfman as being an authority at some point, it would be in character for him to give a gentle ribbing, or perhaps it, it, it really is just like an affectionate, oh, look at this guy. But I, I don't know if there's a connection there. I would love to find out if anybody listening has any insight into the Marvel bullpen at the time. Uh, I would be curious to know. It's also just possible, I guess, that the word bozo was much more common than I am giving it credit for. Someday we'll find it. The bozo, bozo connection. connection. The bozos. The bozos. Mm-hmm. And Marv. That was beautiful, Cord. Thanks. So... Another thing that made me laugh out loud and I couldn't really explain to the people I was hanging out with mm-hmm. was, um, I think his name is George, the neighbor. Oh, God, George. First of all, he's just a dummy because everybody should know you don't like give the Hulk a hard time. Don't get in the Hulk's he, face. One would think that he would have learned the lesson having his entire life savings that was tied up in that house being destroyed the first time. Nope. No, not at all. He continually mocks the Hulk. Yeah, I'm going to look up the panel because there was earlier a description of the Defender's predicament that I also found pretty amusing that went right before that. So Nighthawk is thinking to himself, how do I explain it to myself? Where are the Defenders? Answer, in Connecticut, in goo, amid the wreckage of the headman's headquarters. And that's when George is laughing at them saying, ha! You didn't get my house, you refugees from a Danskin factory. Not this time. That's a pretty good superhero disc. Is Danskin an underwear company? I think they make, um, like leotards for for ballet and dancing. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like a dance skin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Good to know. Yeah, that is a pretty good disc for superheroes. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, unless they're selling a lot of, like, torn purple leotards there, I don't think it's exactly on the money. <laughs> Nope, it doesn't really fit for the Hulk. Or really for Doctor Strange, because he's got some, like, loose-fitting pajamas with a cape. And Val's got some armor. Pretty much just Nighthawk, but he's not there. Yeah. Bad job, George. Yeah, although, you know how when he showed up on the set of They Live, Rowdy Roddy Piper had a notebook filled with cool things he thought he could say if he was ever in an action movie? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum? Yep. I think maybe George has a notebook filled with, here are some things that I'll ever, I'll say if I ever get pissed off at some superheroes. And then he gets pissed off at some superheroes and he's like, fuck, when am I going to get the opportunity to use this uh, sweet, sweet Danskin disc? I know it doesn't totally apply, but pretty close. Could be. Yeah, I think that's probably it. He's a real rowdy, rowdy piper. No. No, he's not. That's a disservice to Mr. Piper. George that is guy's a, a dick. And yeah. so he got his house smashed up again, and I giggled. I did too, but I also did feel bad for the guy, because shit, I got a mortgage. That's got to suck. Now he's got two mo- two mortgages. And On a pile of junk. A pile of junk. Speaking of things that get wrecked, we got a scene that involves some window repairmen, 
when we check back in at the Sanctorum, Wong has contracted them to fix up the busted window from where they decided to put an evil fawn mm-hmm. uh, and just leave him unbound and rolling around the place. And so he, uh, he busted through the window in the last issue. And so Wong was left once again to clean, clean up Steve's mess. Mm-hmm. And Steve comes in. And it's just like, what's going on here? I don't approve of this. There are people doing things. Workers, what? Wong. And Wong's like, yeah, well, you left an angry baby deer that was evil alone in the apartment. And he broke some shit. So I hired some people to fix that shit. And he's like, fine, but see that I'm not disturbed. I'm going to my room. No one else can come in there except for defenders. And the window repairmen. I thought pretty reasonably we're just like, he's talking to Wong like he owns him. That's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. And Valkyrie fucking snaps to Steve's defense and is just like, you don't know what you're talking about, ruffians. Yeah, I feel like the manual labor guys or the trades get a really bum rap in this issue. They absolutely do. And I think they were doing a pretty good job. Like they were doing their job with window repair. They were on a mandated coffee break. I'm assuming they're union. Hulk threatens to smash them. Get back to work. I hate the union. <laughs> yeah, man. Fucking, he may be green, but he's a Pinkerton. <laughs> <laughs> I disapprove the Hulk. Now, uh, overall, like, I think the Hulk did great in this issue, but that one note really did sour me on him and Val and Steve. The whole like, crew, man. Just bad job. Let these guys fucking fix your window that was broken in part through your negligence. And be nicer to Wong. And be nicer to Wong, and good for those window repairmen for sticking up for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm with the window guys. Yeah, and later on there's another scene where the security workers notice that Val is bringing a giant sword into the auditorium. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, you can't do that. And so we get a moment of mysticism versus metal detecting. Steve's concealment spell means that they can't find the sword on her. And they go, it's like, look, we, we have to pat you down. And she takes umbrage at that, which, I mean, I can understand both sides of this to an extent. I mean, she doesn't want to get frisked. I'm sure being a lady in the 70s, the unwanted manhandling was probably, as I'm sure it is today, a pretty significant issue and something that she doesn't want to have to deal with when she's going to a symposium where she can be called a bozo by a magic spaceman. Mm -hmm. But the security guy... A giant sword showed up on the metal detector. He does need to try to make sure that she doesn't have a giant sword that she's bringing in there. And she threatens to break his wrist in a pretty awesome scene. But the common man is getting some short shrift in this issue. Shot upon indeed. Indeed. Let's take a look at the dialogue that Val delivers to the security guard. The security guard says, Jumpin' catfish! Sam, hold those three! The chick's packing a sword! There's a lot of wackos in the world who'd like to assassinate our leader, and none of them are getting into that auditorium. Okay, so I guess they work for Nebulon. I hadn't realized that. I thought they worked for the venue, which would make more sense. But Val says, If you lay even one of your grimy fingers anywhere upon my person, I shall have to squeeze this skinny little wrist of yours until we both hear it go crunch. Have I made my position clear? And he's wincing because Val's real strong. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says it felt like a bear trap. Do you think this behavior might be the result of the headmen fucking with their brains in the last issue? Or is this just business as usual for the defenders? Because honestly, I can see it going either way. 
I don't know about the the part with Val not liking the security guy getting in her face. Like that kind of goes with her personality, but there definitely is an indication when uh, she's feeling all weird about um, Norris's. You body. think that's the result of the of the brain surgery? Yeah, and this is another funny thing too, where Steve really at his Stevie's Val's like sitting over there. She's even talking to herself like anybody does, like, right? When you don't think people are listening, and, and especially like anybody does in a comic book, where self narration is the norm, right? And Steve comes over and's like, Val, you haven't learned how to talk to yourself without making sound yet, <laughs> and that's very bad. I actually really liked that moment a lot. <laughs> yeah, Val's kind of, she's looking over Jack's mindless body, thinking, it's weird. I don't want him to be dead. That's not normal. Just, Why does the thought of him dying disturb me so? That's a very good question, Valkyrie. Because Jack Norris is a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. I am not truly his wife. After all, my persona merely occupies the body which once belonged to Barbara Norris. I have none of her memories nor emotional attachments. So what draws me to reach out to touch him, yet compels me to pull back? And Steve rolls up behind her and says, A word of caution, Val. Uh, Stephen, you heard? You've not yet learned to carry on these dialogues with yourself in the privacy of your thoughts. You should. Especially so now, as it seems you've made contact with Barbara's suppressed consciousness. So you think the fact that she can talk to the Babs that lives inside her mind is the result of the brain switcheroo, maybe? Or the, what was that, cephalic indubity-boob? Yep. Yeah. I think it's it's possible. I mean, huh? never really came up before. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I, I saw more of, it seemed more in character for... The headmen to be adjusting their brains to make them be more jerks. So they'd be like, yeah, because I think he said something like, They'll, that'll bring them all around to our way of thinking more. I think the headmen are not as good at science as they think they are. Uh, and that they're just like, well, just put him in this machine and twiddle the knobs and it'll probably do some stuff. That do you think like. it's a real machine or do you think they just put them in a hairdryer? Like one of those old timey hairdryers that make the beehive hairdos? Uh, and like maybe they, uh, Put some light brights into it. I'm sure there was some componentry like that that's part of it. But, I mean, they also were able to, you know, they did do some They science. did some brain swapping. Yeah. Pretty so good the one time. They got some chops. I'm just saying that they're not all that good. I like the idea that Steve has just recently figured out how to have an internal monologue. And now he's just getting evangelical about it. And is kind of a know-it-all about it. You don't have to say everything out loud. <laughs> Val, have you heard the good news? Thinking things to yourself. Yeah. That's okay. He can I, preach that. Yeah, I think that's fine. But I, I do think that is kind of in character. I, I mean, you know, converts always make the uh, the biggest zealots. I, I think he, he just apparently off-panel since the last issue figured out that you can just think things to yourself. And uh, now is just spreading the gospel. That seems reasonable. Yeah, I think he's eventually going to get around to all of the rest of the comic book universe. Mm. Thought bubbles for everyone. Let's talk about Chandu. Mm. So he wrecks Steve's apartment. Pro- well, he's in the deer body. Probably shits all over the place. I'm imagining. Breaks the window. Gets free for like a second. Then the Ludbradites scoop him up. I like that in their attempt to get a cross-section 
of Earth's vision of what peace should be. They got Sissy and Mitchell from the park, mm-hmm. and an old lady, and a business guy, and a gangster, and a giraffe, and an elephant, and a baby deer. I really like that kind of a summit being put together. It's like, all right, what do these people have in common? And that when they scanned their brainwaves, what they got that those people had in common was Bozo the Clown. (laughs) The only thing that was missing was the hero. Yeah, and they got what they think is the hero. Boy, did they fuck up. That's not a hero. That's best case scenario Jack Norris. (laughs) So Shandu is in the baby deer body, gets scooped up by the Ludbradites, taken to their island that is in a different dimension that is not ancient greece but an old lady thinks looks like ancient greece and when he is there his brain shows up in somebody else's body and he freaks out and starts attacking it and everybody's just like why is a baby deer attacking that dude and is super confused and it is wonderful and adorable it is also funny the assumption people make of like what did you do to that baby deer (laughs) i think that's a reasonable assumption (laughs) That's true. I guess the deer was fine. <laughs> yeah. Until the dude showed up. Yeah. Then there's the weird reveal that all of the people that had been living in that dimension, they get somehow life energy sucked out of them, and then they're kind of mind-controlled by Nebulon, which I think would give lie to the altruism component of his story. Maybe? Unless just, like, secretly he, like, is uncovering the truth that humanity wants to be controlled... Yeah, what is the machine doing? Because it is, like, draining people's vital energies. But yeah, and they it? look dead for a second, but then they're not. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't I don't really get it either. But we get the reveal at the big bozo rally that uh, they're all backstage, and they're all super into calling people bozos. There's a really fun scene where Nighthawk calls Doctor Strange a bozo, but he just says it really flatly, and there's, like, it's... Everybody else has been talking in exclamation points, and he just looks at Doctor Strange and says, Bozo. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was awesome. Still holding his brain in the bowl? Uh-huh. <laughs> really <This> clutching. Wonderful <laughs> this, scene. This brain bowl in his clammy Kyle hands. <laughs> everybody fights everybody for like a second, and then Shandu somehow absorbed enough ambient mysticism from... Doctor Strange and the Ludbradites and the machine, that he can do magic again, even though previously he hadn't been able to do any magic in the deer body because he needs to focus it through words and gestures. Mm-hmm. Which is why they put him in the deer body to begin with. Then he teleports Nebulon away. Maybe to the headman's headquarters? We don't know what he's doing there. But we do know that he doesn't have Chandu's brain anymore. What are they going to do with Chandu's brain? When they put the Kyle back together. They've got the parts for the Kyle. Mm -hmm. They've got the parts for the Jack Norris. Mm -hmm. And then they have an extra corporeal brain. Is that just going to go in a bowl? Well, they probably got Chandu's body in a big bowl back somewhere at the lab. (laughs) (laughs) They'll just pop the brain back in there. Yeah, you're right. It is probably in a really big bowl. They should get some fucking Tupperware. Yep. Seriously, if you are putting together an evil science lab, I think a lot of people skimp on this, but add to the shopping list after your scalpels, your Erlenmeyer flask, your Frankenstein table, a couple of fucking large-sized Tupperwares. Big enough at least for a full-grown human. Yeah, big enough at least for a full-size human brain. 
Mm. Oh, well, yeah. That goes without that saying. That fluid's just swashing around. Dangerous. For so long. It's been in there for so long. <laughs> that brain is not going to be good when they try and put it back. Well, and, I mean, Kyle did show up to a party with it, essentially. I mean, or Kyle's body did. Like, he shows up, you show up to a party, everybody's disoriented, and you're holding a big bowl full of liquid. I'm assuming some people scooped that out and drank some. Mm-hmm. Gross. Yeah, I mean, they're confused. Well, sure. Or an elephant. <laughs> Elephants love to party, and they are notorious for hogging the punch bowl. Oh, no. Brain punch. Oh, boy. Gross. Indeed. But that's elephants for you. Gross? No, just, uh, loving to be social. Oh. Beautiful animals. Very, very social animals. Yep. Capable of deception. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. A really good book called The Octopus and the Orangutan, Anecdotal Tales of Animal Intelligence. Highly recommend. But yeah, uh, elephants capable of deception. Wow. Yeah. Octopus? Oh, yeah. They're sneaky fucks, man. And very, very smart. Mm. Boy. Yeah. And our orangutans, don't get me started. The uh, the locksmith one? I, I'm sorry. I, this can't just be a animal intelligence <laughs> podcast. Uh, we should move on. <laughs> that's the other podcast. Yeah, that's right. Well, we should start that podcast. That'd be fun. Yeah, it'll be between the comic books, the getting into touch. Right. And the animal intelligence. Yeah. Good deal. Animal intelligence. Smartest animals we got. Hear that? Episode one. Gobblers. <laughs> Gobblers. <laughs> well, shit, I know we got more to get to, but do you want to move on to the minutiae and figure it'll come up then? Let's. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. So, sound effects. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh, boy. There was some good ones. Yeah. There was one that I really appreciated on page 27. Mm-hmm. I think I have the same one. And it's a noise of a Nebulon blasting the stage floor. Mm -hmm. And it makes a schwack. I really enjoyed that too. And I was trying to figure out a way in which a space laser hitting a stage floorboard makes a schwack sound. And I can't, but I still like it. Yeah, I think I had that as possibly my favorite. The other one that I had in contention was on page 10. It is the sound of Nebulon traveling by flaming meteor for some reason. Really, for no apparent reason, other than I guess it does make a dramatic entrance onto the streets of New York. But it makes the noise, choom, when mm. it lands. And I thought that was pretty fun. Classic. Mm-hmm. Do you have any others? Yep. Um, I like the noise, I think, page three. And I think it's George the Jerk's house getting smashed again. And the noise is cracksh. So it's like a crack and a smash put together. Yeah, and that's one that, unlike schwack, I can hear that noise in my head. Like a piece of sidewalk hitting the foundation of a house that is being built, I can see that making a crack. Mm -hmm. Wood is splintering, things are breaking. Uh-huh, it's the impact followed by the wood being torn asunder. It, uh, very evocative. I liked that a lot. That said, I think my favorite sound effect was a dual sound effect, and it was the sound of Val and uh, Hulk getting zapped by one of Spaceman's rays. Ah, the old wump chud. Uh, chud wuck. 
Oh, boy. Yeah. So, uh, W-H-U-C-K and a chud. Wook chud! Yep. And they're also emoting at the same time as the air is getting knocked out of them, saying, like, ooh, and oof. So, a lot going on. There really is. And it also does just bring to mind how powerful Nebulon is. It is funny that he says, Celestial Mind Control! And then he just shoots them with lasers. Yeah, he's not good at language. No, but he is good at being a cult leader. So. Very powerful. Yeah, very charismatic. Good at shooting space beams out of his hands. So he has his own skill set. Corey, in this issue, as every issue of a Defenders comic, there is one character who just has to be a sucker, like the fat boys in Crush Groove, and act in a way that is counter to his previously established character, but in a manner that furthers the plot. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? I know it's supposed to be one, but I pretty much have a three-way tie for this. I think I can pick the one, though. Okay. So, it's not that the choice that was made is random like it's the val and steve strange and the hulk are all trying to blend in uh-huh at the seminar yes neither uh, any of them i would think would even entertain the thought of putting a plastic bozo mask on their faces that was found under a chair even if it is to infiltrate nebulon's you know plans mm-hmm but in particular, in the scene you mentioned earlier, Steve sitting there and taking the cheerleaders, bozoing him, <laughs> still keeping his mask on. That is so far out of his normal Stevie-ness. Yeah. And it furthered the plot. I think that's a, a perfect um, sucker. I think that is a very fair choice. Uh, I had a different one that also, unlike some of the ones we've had lately, very much fits the gotta be a sucker category. It is the Incredible Hulk displaying a heretofore unknown borderline telepathic sense of intuition, where when he spots Nebulon in his little nerdy man disguise, instantly recognizes not only that that is actually Nebulon, but that that is who took his baby deer, which he has no way of knowing. It doesn't make any sense. It is not a skill that the Hulk has ever displayed beforehand. And uh, I feel that that counts, and he is just being a sucker there. That's fair. All right. Well done. Thank you. Great job, us. Likewise. Sartorially speaking, was there any fashion of note that you specifically wanted to comment on in this issue? Sure. Uh, we've talked about Nebulon's getup before, so we can't really do that again but it oh, is really boy. something it sure is he's got that charlie daniels intercontinental belt buckle he's got a uh, sparkle hair sparkle hair he's got the universe sewn into a leotard he truly is the celestial man from beyond the stars it's a very very glam david bowie look very and, glam uh, very shiny it's pretty great yep that said a couple humans george's daughter has a really cute outfit on, which it looks like she's got a magenta sports coat, like a, a blazer. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool outfit for a little kid. That is a pretty cool look. There's a lot of blazers in this issue. The blazer that I would like to talk about is the one that Val wears when she is in disguise. Ah, that was my other vote. It is a very stylish pantsuit with a somewhat long blazer. Both appear to be red or reddish orange, and she's wearing it over a white turtleneck. And it is a very stylish look. Really 
in their civilian outfits, and the Hulk has clearly been disguised to have a pasty face, it seems like if they were going to disguise the Hulk as a human, it might also have been worthwhile for them to shrink him down to regular human size, if you're already making a disguise for the guy. But apparently not. He has an interesting look, too, where he has kind of a popped collar on a large gray blazer, and he's wearing one of those, like, uh, winter hats with ear flaps, kind of like Elmer Fudd wears, but not plaid. And it's a pretty good look for the dude. He's wearing it over a yellow turtleneck. Yeah, a lot of blazers in this issue, and fairly well uh, conceived. Good style. I'm into it. Good. In this issue, as every issue of a Defenders comic, there is a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who was the worst offender? I had, uh, I think, a pretty solid front choice, but I did have a a runner-up. So my first choice was Nighthawk. I think that's fair. Why did you choose Nighthawk? Well, just bad job all around. I mean, doesn't matter whose brain's in your body or who's... (laughs) Soul is in that brain. Like, he does this, she still sucks. You sound like you're his supervisor when he shows up for work with an excuse note from Dr. Strange. Just looks at the note and is just like, look, I don't care whose brain's in your body and whose mind's in that brain. You're doing a bad job and somebody's got to take responsibility for it. We're supposed to be here at nine. (laughs) We're supposed to empty those things. It's 10 o'clock, those things are still full. Don't care whose mind's in that brain. 9 o'clock is not 9.15, Jack Kyle Chondu. Exactly. So, he got the nod for me. The runner-up, for reasons we mentioned before, is Val. Because I don't think that she should have told those repair guys that uh, that it was okay for Doctor Strange to treat Wong like he treats him. I agree. And then that set off Hulk on his thing. And if I feel like if she hadn't done that, Hulk wouldn't have been like, yeah, I'll get back to work. I hate the union. Yeah, man, I got to say, it was it was so close to just being a four-way tie. They all had things that they did well, but there were enough things that, like, really their treatment of the, of the window repairmen was really troubling to me, especially Val's. But then, I mean, the behavior that precipitated that was Steve being high-handed and a dick to Wong, as he often is. You also have the fact that they double down on the fact that Steve definitely disposed of the baby deer's mind, or at least didn't take it into account. Like, that's not cool, and you get more in this issue that Hulk doesn't really understand or know that he did that. And that is pretty shitty as Steve, and I don't like that. I mean, what was doubled down on is the fact that he definitely did not put the deer mind into Jack's body. Like, Jack has a lifeless body. They just got rid of a baby deer's mind, and I'm not okay with that. So Steve did a pretty bad job in terms of that, and the Hulk both threatening the window repairmen. And, yes, it was funny, but it was definitely disproportionate, if not out of character, for him to double-destroy George's house just because he got mocked a little bit. So, I don't know. uh, George. For worst, I decided to go with Steve. Hmm. Oh, so Steve is the worst offender in my book. Hmm. Uh, but as I said, it was it was touch and go, and it really could have been any of them for me. Yeah, yeah, you're really stuck on the baby deer thing. I suspect maybe at some point they'll just be like, "Hey, the baby deer is fine." There he goes hopping off into the woods. Hulk's sad, but also relieved. I don't know, man. Could I be like know. Doctor Strange just has the deer consciousness 
stashed in a statue or something. Like he's got like astral deer floating around hanging out with uh, Dane Whitman in a cosmos. Yeah. Maybe. Like I fucking hope so. But uh, e- either way, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed with Steve. And even if it is just his high-handed treatment of Wong, his loyal friend for many years. Fuck that guy. Bad job, Steve. And his lecturing Val about internal monologue. Definitely hypocritical of the dude. Hmm. Even if it is fun. Fun and pompous. Mm-hmm. That's the Steve Strange story. Conversely, who did you have as the best defender? I know you just said you don't like that the Hulk smashed George's house. But you do like that the Hulk smashed George's house. <laughs> that, and also <laughs> that he does really care for Bambi. Yeah. And he wants to protect this creature. And so I gave the, the nod to a Hulk. Okay, I, I can understand that. Uh, I don't like him threatening the union workers enough that I could not give it to the Hulk. Although, I agree, he did do a good job in that, and his unfathomable recognition of Nebulon and really solving the whole case despite nobody believing him the entire time. He he did a pretty good job, but like I said, I didn't like how he threatened the union workers. Val, I liked the way she asserted herself, but it was definitely overkill and misdirected in the way that she confronted the repairmen and to an extent the security guards later she also chastised the hulk for not remembering nebulon's name which come on he's the fucking hulk and he said sparkly man you could have figured it out from context clues you've spoken to the hulk before you know how he gives little nicknames to people Mm. so it can't be val we've already established that you think nighthawk is the worst and i think that's valid his inaction due to his being paralyzed by indecision really led to him being subsumed by whatever kind of group mind think Nebulon's pushing on him. So it definitely can't be Nighthawk or any of the three people living in Nighthawk's body. I already said that Steve is the worst. So this is kind of a stretch. And we've discussed the fact before that the Defender's rule is anybody who is operating alongside the Defenders is potentially a Defender. It's like the Freebirds rule for defending a championship title. So, in this context, the best defender is the window repairman. (laughs) They stuck up for Wong, and they did a good job cleaning up the window. They are being employed by the defenders as subcontractors, therefore are technically working in concert with the defenders and are honorary defenders. Therefore, the best defender in this issue is the window repair people. Uh, It's a stretch, but I'll grant it. Sustained. What was your favorite panel? There was a lot to choose from. Mm-hmm. So many bozos. There really were. For me, it came down to two panels that are both on the same page. It is page 27. And there is one that I call Bozo Smash. Which is Hulk wearing his bozo mask over his human disguise looking very angry as Bozo, and Valkyrie in her Bozo outfit over her civilian disguise, being very upset and wanting to smash the disguised Nebulon. It's a really fun panel, and there are several Bozos in the background, and it's just kind of surreal looking and really cool. But I think my favorite is the one that immediately follows it, which is Doctor Strange somehow managing to wear a look of wounded dignity through his Bozo the Clown disguise, as cheerleaders surround him, chanting, 
B-O-Z-O, you're a bozo, bozo, bozo! I had the same panel as my top choice. <laughs> How could you not? It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Did you have any backups? I did have a backup. I had two backups. One is All the Bozos on page 23, and that's the kind of panoramic shot of the entire audience, including the defenders wearing their <laughs> bozo masks. Yeah, that's pretty great. Very funny. The Hulk looks especially goofy. Mm-hmm. And then I also had on page three, Bambi Attack. The Bambi Attack was really fun, too. More of the <laughs> brain goop is splashing out of the bowl, and Nighthawk is just like, ah, what's going on? Oh, gosh. Bambi's growling. So which do you think Kyle is going to be more upset with it, Jack, when he gets back into his body? The potential brain damage he caused from sloshing around so much in that bowl, or the fact that Kyle spilled brain juice on his fancy Nighthawk costume. Oh, probably the former, because I'm sure he can afford plenty of uniforms. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Good point. Guy who buys a fucking adamantium chair for the Hulk on a whim probably has a few spare Nighthawk duds lying around. Probably so. I'd be pissed if somebody spilt brain juice on my Nighthawk costume, though. Sounds pretty gross. Yeah. Speaking of categories that have a number of potential answers, Corey, what were your favorite words in this issue? Let us depart the scene of suburban madness! That's pretty fun. Doctor Strange, ready to leave Connecticut after extracting them from the goo. <laughs> I think that one's pretty good. I also really liked, on page 23, Nebulon in his human disguise, giving his address to the audience. Greetings, folks. I'm here tonight to set you on a path to a fuller, more fruitful, more productive life. It's within the grasp of each of you. New hope, new self-confidence. But first, you must admit to yourself that you've made a stinking mess of everything so far. How stupidly you've arranged your lives. How little any of you know about anything. Admit it. You're all bozos. Whew. And he's impassioned giving this speech. He really is. The old lady sitting next to Doctor Strange is clutching her pearls. She literally says, Well, I never! Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. The whole Bozo speech is great. The whole self-help guru thing is great. But I think my favorite is after my favorite panel, where Doctor Strange is having his wounded dignity as cheerleaders are calling him a Bozo. And they say, you're a bozo, bozo, bozo. He removes his mask and says, What I am, sir, is grossly offended and curious as to what you've done to these people. Mm. And I really like that. I think that's a very good, in-character Doctor Strange thing to say. And it tickled me. Very Stevie indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, Corey, as we all know, the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, yeah, this one was pretty easy for me to pick out. Okay. And that was the Hulk's rules in this issue are that each of us is responsible for making our own choices and accepting the consequence of those choices. Wow. Maybe you are hurled into the stratosphere by Nebulon in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Maybe you choose to smash that bubble and fall back to Earth. That's your choice. It's probably going to hurt, <laughs> but go ahead. I think that's a very good rule for the Hulk to learn and for all of us to learn. Mm -hmm. 
I know that next time I'm in a fight with Nebulon, if I find myself sealed in a bubble and hurled into space, I'm not going to blame my third grade teacher. No. I am going to blame Nebulon, but I... Oh, that's fair. (laughs) But I am also going to accept the consequences of my own actions that led me to fight Nebulon. Yep. The other rule that the Hulk learned, you got to trust your gut. More specifically, you got to trust the Hulk's gut. (laughs) Because... The Hulk just had a feeling that he didn't trust that little man who arrived in a comet in the middle of Times Square. There was something off about him. Normally, his gut tells him things that you should also listen to, which is, you should eat beans. Mm-hmm. Of course. Eat beans now. Beans are delicious. Eat all the beans. They're good. Right. But this time, his gut told him, that's Nebulon. That's the sparkly man. And he stole my baby deer. Go smash the shit out of that. Go smash the shit out of that guy. And then accept the consequences of smashing the shit out of uh-huh. that guy. Yeah. And that's The Hulk's Rules. <laughs> well, Corey, I think there's just one more thing to discuss. What's that? Corey, what's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture, as we have mentioned several times already, is... It's not cool to treat your friends or your coworkers or your employees like big jerks and that you're better than them. Agreed. How did that manifest itself in the year of our Lord, 1976, and the month of our Lord, April? Well, it manifested itself, uh, as the laborers that we mentioned before pointed out, in the way that, that Steve Strange was treating Wong, which was just badly. Yes. And, you know, Wong did his part. He was rather stoic about the whole thing. He paid the laborers. They fixed up the window. Didn't go bug Steve in his sanctum, in his uh, office. Uh Uh-huh. But he was hurt. Yeah. He wasn't feeling good. Yeah. And so, as people often do in in times like that, he turned to escape. Well, how did he decide to escape? In this case, he escaped into fiction. Oh, my goodness. I think we have an overlap. Oh, dear. Into a lavish world. Ooh, a gothic world? A lavish gothic (laughs) world of southern vampires and sexy times. (laughs) That's right. He picked up the first publishing of Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, April 1976. And Wong stayed up all night reading that book. He just got pulled right in, really lost himself in it. You know what? You're right. That is exactly how Wong spent his time. But there were further consequences to it. Uh Uh-oh. Wong actually was able to get himself an advanced copy of the book. It was not published until April 12th, but he ended up getting a copy on April 1st. Oh. And you're right. He had been upset with Steve, and so he actually talked with him, and they actually talked it out, and they had a good talk and decided that I'm not sure if Steve is going to stick with it. I suspect that he won't, but that he's going to try to treat Wong with a little bit more respect. And they decided as a, as like a morale building activity, they were going to play a prank. So they sent a number of advanced copies of Interview with a Vampire to a certain castle in Transylvania. <laughs> and Dracula got it. And he's like, what is this? And then he read it and he's like, this isn't how it is as a vampire. And he was very upset. So then Wong and Steve kept using their astral powers to send 
illusions of people to knock on Dracula's door and ask for Lestat's autograph on their copy of Interview with the Vampire. And Dracula got so pissed. Oh, no. And Wong and Steve had a really good laugh about it because they have tussled with Dracula before, and they will again. Mm. And that guy's a real fucking dick. So that is what was wrong with this picture in April of 1976. Very good. I think it's funny that we both went with the interview with a vampire being published. How could you not? Yeah, well, fair enough. I mean, what else happened? Did Apple computers were introduced? Which has had a bigger impact on our society? The answer is clear, and Rice. <laughs> I mean, Steve's already got the eye of Agamotto. He doesn't need a... Yeah, he doesn't. He's Mac. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not even a Mac yet. It's Apple mm-hmm. Two. Or it's not even an Apple II, it's an Apple One. Wouldn't be the Apple II for many years. No. Oh. Look at you. Yeah. Mr. Computers. That's what they call me. <laughs> they call me Mr. Computers. I did have an Apple IIe when I was a kid. Mm. That was uh, not a good computer. Could play Dark Castle? No, I don't think it could. Could no. it? You could play uh, Karatika on it. And, Is that uh, an erotic karate game? No, we've discussed that before, <laughs> oh, actually. Shit. It should have been, but it wasn't. That's a shame. Uh, I know, I know. Big disappointment. <laughs> Your 12-year-old self was like, Hey, man, I wanted some erotic karate. <laughs> that's, that's a good 12. Yeah, you knew me when I was 12. Yeah. I was always saying that in it. that voice. Nailed it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to contribute to us monetarily, I really wish you would. We've got a Patreon set up at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcatcher of choice, and uh, you can look around the place. Maybe we're there. We're good at hiding. The internet place? Oh, yeah, sure, the internet, too. Okay. Yeah, who knows where we'll pop up next. One place that I popped up recently was on uh, Jane Miles' Explain the X-Men. So if uh, you're a new listener from that, hope you enjoyed the show. And if you're not, go listen to Jane Miles' Explain the X-Men. It's a good show. You'll like it. Explain so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Mostly about the X-Men, but also about other things, too. Mm. Yeah. We're on Facebook and Instagram and all of the places. Good. What was it that I always used to say as a child? I want to play a game about erotic karate. Erotica. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. And they knew it. Maybe not a blanket statement, but yeah. Like a duvet cover statement? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Nobody knows how to fold those. Oh, man. So difficult to fold. They're like a fitted sheet. Or to put the blanket inside. Oh, God. Is that what the duvet cover is? It's the thing that you've got to put the, like, down comforter inside of, and that you've got to, like, fill it into the corners? Yes. Oh, man. I hate that thing. It's very comfy, though. And you don't call a down comforter a duvet usually so why does the cover for one called a duvet cover these are the mysteries that will keep us up at nights and pro wrestling yeah that and pro wrestling and if we are kept up at night 
Good thing we got a duvet. I guess so. <laughs> ah, what were we talking about? George. 